0: Well, good morning, Shore Church. It's, um, it's good to be with you again, um, even if it's like this. Uh, so however you're watching this, um, thanks for the invitation. Thanks to you. Thanks to James for inviting me in. He's told me that you're in a series on the book of Amos. And so I'm going to have you turn to Amos chapter 3 if you haven't already. Um, as you find that, um, last year I was invited to speak at a preaching conference at Regent College called the Prophetic Voice. Um, There were about six or seven of us that were invited, and we were given the task to preach a a prophetic sermon, which um, doesn't mean that we were asked to preach a sermon prophesying about the future, but instead, um, like the prophets of old, we were called in to, to give an address that spoke into the current goings-on of our world and to bring the word of God into it, um, which was what the prophets of old did. They, they got a word of God, they received a word of God, and they took it to the culture, they took it to the world, and they spoke into the culture, most often highlighting the sins and the, and the treachery, the iniquities that were, that were going on in it, which is why most people hated prophets. It was a tough gig, and it was why most, most prophets, or at least many prophets, were killed or, or at least were persecuted, um, were beaten, um, were thrown in wells, for example, were, were, were just ransacked. It was, tough. it was a tough gig, tough to be a prophet. Um, it was like being a doctor who only gave terminal diagnoses or at least most of the time. I mean, you can imagine being a doctor where that's your only message. It's bad news, it's bad news, it's bad news. And again, that was like the prophets of old. They were hated, and like I said, many of them were were killed. The Old Testament is full of prophets, as we know, but we see, see prophets in the New Testament as well who model examples of prophetic preaching. One of the most prominent is John the Baptist. Just listen to what Matthew records John saying to the religious leaders of his day in Matthew chapter 3, and you can read this on the screen. Matthew records When John saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. That is quintessential prophetic preaching. And it's not alone. We see examples of this type of preaching in other individuals in the New Testament. People like Peter and Paul at times speak very prophetically into the world around them. But the greatest prophetic preacher in the New Testament was Jesus himself. Jesus did not hesitate to speak boldly into the day and its culture and call it out. Uh, One of the greatest examples of this type of, of preaching by way of Jesus is contained in his sermon of seven woes that's recorded in Matthew chapter 23. Here's a snippet I'll read for you from Matthew 23, verses 13 to 15. Again, you can read this on the screen with me. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Whew! It's, It's not surprising that the greatest prophet of all time, the one whom all prophecies find their yes and amen in, is killed like so many prophets before him. But, but here's the thing, and perhaps you're already keying in on this and seeing a theme within some of the texts that I've taken you to, why prophets were so often hated was because they didn't just speak into the culture at large, but most often they spoke into the wrongful practices of the people of God who should have known better. I mean, just consider, again, the ministry life of Jesus. The way Jesus spoke to the so-called sinner and and prostitute and tax collector was far different than it was to the religious leadership of of the day. To the the former, he was very invitational. But to the latter, he was confrontational. Different groups, different approaches. Paul seems to take this model from Jesus and flesh it out in his ministry life as well. Let me show you what I mean. this, This approach, this different approach to the different people groups around him is shown in something that Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 5, verses 9 to 11. Again, you can read this on the screen with me. Paul writes, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral people of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. And we know that's not our call. I mean, Jesus in John 17 says, I'm sending you into the world. And Paul's going, you got to stay in the world. But, but, now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or as an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Hmm. In other words, what Paul is saying is don't, don't vacate the mission field. You, you hang out with the drunks and the greedy. Uh, You you go to the houses of the swindler and you break bread with them, but if someone calls themselves brother, meaning if someone identifies themselves as a Christian, a, a follower of Jesus, and is living unabashedly and unrepentedly in sin, don't even eat with them. Don't even eat with them. same practices, by the way, in the case of this brother in context, sexual immorality. And Paul says, don't even eat with him. But the sexually immoral in the world, by all means, spend spend much time with them. Two different practices, two different approaches. Why? Why? Why is this? Why does Jesus model this? Why does Paul take his cues from Jesus in this this way? Well, some of you aren't going to like my answer. But but here's the reality, and it goes beyond the simple answer of, well, Christians have to live differently. Is that true? Of course it's true. But but it goes beyond that. There's, There's something more, and it's tied into what we're going to be looking at today in great detail. Here it is. Here's the answer. God's judgment is lesser or greater based on the revelation that one receives. That's why, for example, James in his epistle writes that not many of us should be teachers. Why not? For those who teach will be judged with greater strictness in other words if you've come to a point where things have been revealed to you you take it in and you you come to a a place in life where you're now teaching others where, where the spirit of god is showing you things you'll be judged with greater strictness and and here's the thing James James is tame he's tame He's tame especially when compared to what the author of Hebrews writes in Hebrews chapter 6. One more time, it'll be on the screen. The author of Hebrews writes, It is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift Just as I read through this, just hear about the revelation, hear about the goodness, hear about the things that they're experiencing, who have been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away. To restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. I, I, I hesitated giving that text to you by just using it as, as a cross-reference today because the, the text deserves a lot of time and attention because it... it, it, it just begs a lot of questions, but I'm just going to let it hang there for us and just see the big picture that, look, as we experience things in the kingdom of heaven, as God opens our eyes to things and allows us to taste things and read things and, and interact with other followers of God, there's certain expectations that come with that. Paul speaks to this. He speaks to this in Romans 2 when asking, do you presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. In other words, here's what Paul is saying. You you know God to be kind and gracious. You, You know that about him. That's been revealed to you. But instead of that leading to repentance, meaning turning to him, turning from something and turning to him, you're taking advantage of it. And what Paul says is, you know what you're doing? You, every time you resist that in the hardness of your heart, you're, you're storing up more wrath. It's like you have a big barn and you just keep on throwing more and more wrath into it. And it's all tied to this revelation of God to you, his goodness to you. And instead of it leading you to him, we continue to reject him. And Paul warns us against it. Jesus affirms all of this. Jesus affirms all of this when he says in Matthew 11, again, one more time on the screen, woe to you, Chorazin. I used to always say Chorazin, Chorazin. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, They would have repented long ago in in sackcloth and ashes. Let me just stop there before I read the rest. Here's what's going on. Most, or at least much of the ministry of Jesus took place centered around some small towns in northern Northern Israel in the, the region of Galilee. Chorazin, for example, was one of those places, Bethsaida was another one of those places. And he did mighty works there, miracles there. He, he taught there. And, and he is pronouncing woes on them in this text. Why? Because he's saying, you're rejecting me. And then he goes back in time and he pulls out two other cities, Tyre and Sidon, pagan cities known for Baal worship. And he says, in a very... An amazing statement demonstrating the divinity of Jesus. He says, look, those cities, those pagan cities that worship Baal, if I did for them what I'm doing for you now, they would have repented. And you're not. And then Jesus says this, but I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. Tyre and Sidon didn't repent. But Jesus says it will be more bearable for them because they had less revelation. I, I, I wasn't there. I'm here now with you. They, they, they never saw this. It, it will be. And then later, Jesus, just a couple of verses later, and you can read this on your own, he, he, he compares Capernaum, that's Jesus' home base for most of his ministry life, with Sodom. Sodom. And he says the same thing. It, it will be more bearable on Sodom than it will be for you, Capernaum. More revelation, and therefore... They will incur a greater judgment. This is not hyperbole, by the way. This is a theme that weaves its way throughout all of scripture. I could give you more, but the sobering reality is to whom much is given, much will be required. As as there are levels of rewards in God's kingdom, and there are, so too are there levels of punishment in God's judgment. And those levels of punishment are connected to the level of revelations one receives while still rejecting the grace of God. By the way, before we eventually get and finally get to Amos 3, who is the greatest example of this in the scriptures? Well, who, who had the greatest revelation of God? Who, who experienced just grand revelation and insight? Who, who saw God? Experienced wonders after wonders after wonders and rejected it and uh, incurred the greatest judgment. You, as you think about it, you might want to say Judas, but there is actually one that Judas was patterned after. Satan himself, Lucifer, the greatest of all God's angels, the the mightiest of God's heavenly hosts, he he dwelt in the very presence of God. And he rejected him. In his pride, he rebelled from him with a a third of the angels along with him and he was thrown out of heaven, thrown out of heaven, greatest revelation thrown out of heaven and his fate, an eternal abyss with forgiveness no longer attainable. God not granting him the opportunity for repentance. Greatest revelation, greatest judgment, and Judas followed that pattern. And, and sadly, many continue to follow that pattern today. Why, why am I beginning this way? I'm beginning this way because that's Amos chapter three. This is the theme of Amos chapter three. That's the entire book, in fact. But it gets spotlighted in this chapter. Just think about what you have already learned in the last two weeks by way of the, the sermons of James. Great sermons, by the way, the... He's just done a fantastic job introdu- introducing this, this, this great book. But just think about what we know about the people of God. I mean, we've dealt with the nations, and we've looked at Judah, but now we're looking at Israel, and they had been given much. Just think about what had, given, what had been given to the people of God, and yet, what was their response? Rebellion? Treachery? I- idolatry? I mean, just go back to last week and something that James showed you then. Actually, before I do that, let me me show you what I mean by the the experiences of Israel before I show you last week. By, By having you look at verses one and two in our text, a section that I'm titling, if you like taking notes, the uniqueness of their relationship. So I talk about the unique relationship that Israel has with God. Just notice what verses one and two Uh, record for us. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Do you hear how their relationship with God is described? The the uniqueness of that relationship? God addresses them as family. Family. His one and only family. Just notice what, you only have I known, I chose you from among all the families of the earth. And I've done so much for you. First and foremost, I I brought you out of Egypt. I brought you out of slavery. And again, this should remind us of last week and what James says. That's where I was going to go before, but let's look at it now. Just notice what verses 9 to 11 record for us there in chapter 2. Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them whose height was like the height of the cedars and who was as strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. Speaking of just how God escorted them and and allowed them to walk into the land of Canaan and fought on their behalf. Also, it was I who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And I led you for 40 years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite and I raised up some of your sons for prophets. And some of your young men for Nazarites, is it not indeed so, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? Do you you hear that? I chose you, I I freed you, I fed you, I led you, I raised you up. You're my family. You're you're the apple of my eye. And yet, as as we also saw last week, you you take advantage of the poor and you ignore the afflicted and you cause others to sin and if that wasn't bad enough, you bow down to other idols. This is nuts. But, but it would be somewhat understandable if the people of God rebelled against a God who was harsh and demanding and unloving but he's not that type of God. And here's the thing. They knew that. They, they didn't just know his commands. They knew him. They knew that the Lord is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. They knew that God. That's who they were in relationship with. But instead of it leading to adoration and devotion and in. In spite of constant warning, they continued to sin against that God and they were harsh against their neighbor too. We saw that last week as well. I mean, verses seven and eight in chapter two, they trampled the head of the poor. They turned aside from the afflicted. Man and his father go into the same girl. They lay themselves down before every altar. Against that God. Fast forward in your mind uh, to the New Testament with me and think about the parable of the prodigal son or the lost son. Do you know what makes the, the sin of the prodigal so grievous? It was done against a dad like that. That's what makes our sin so grievous too. We know that dad, he's our Abba. He saved us. He sent his son to us and for us. He freed us and he leads us and he he raised us and he provides for us. And yet we, like Israel, so often turn our backs on him, not because he's not good, but in spite of being just the opposite. This is why, by the way, especially in the Old Testament text, why why most often the sins of God's people is described as adultery. Not, Not idolatry, but adultery because Our sin is akin to cheating on a spouse and not a bad spouse. Not an uncaring, harsh spouse, but an altogether loving and caring one. King David, remember King David? King David sinned big time. King David literally committed adultery and he tried to cover up his tracks, as we know, with treachery and murder and and so forth. He was finally confronted, and he repents. His prayer of repentance is recorded in Psalm 51, and again, you can read this on the screen. Psalm 51 begins this way, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. It's it's a wonderful two verses, but here's the thing why would David approach God like that in his repentance? Well, the answer is because David knew God to be like that, abundant in mercy. Steadfast in love. Which is what makes the sin of David so grievous too. David didn't sin against the God he knew to be uncaring and harsh. He he sinned against the God he knew to be anything but. Do you you know how hard our hearts can be sometimes? They can see, here's how hard our hearts can be. Our our hearts at times allow us to see the love and mercy and compassion and caring of God to be permission to sin. That's how hard they are. I mean, do you hear how backwards this is? I mean, if you were married, I know not all of you are married, and perhaps you're married to this person I'm about to describe, but if you are married or if you get married and you were married to a sweet, loving, caring, devoted spouse, would you get up in the morning and go, boy, I'm going to take advantage of that? That'd be nuts. Like, who would do that? Who would do that? No, you'd get up and go, I am devoted to him or her. I'd treasure him or her. The the last thing I want to do is hurt him or her. You'd want to honor a spouse like that, wouldn't you? You wouldn't want to hurt a spouse like that. Peter knew. Remember Peter? We all remember Peter. We love Peter. Peter denied Jesus three times, and the rooster crowed. And Luke records that at that moment, oh, Jesus looked at Peter. At that moment, Jesus looked at Peter, Peter looked at Jesus, And I I think I can guarantee you that Jesus didn't look at Peter with harshness and a a a furrowed furrowed brow, but with love and compassion and and sorrow too, I would think, and sadness as well. And, And what Luke records is that Peter in that moment Looking into the eyes of Jesus, Peter, in that moment, realized who he had denied. And he ran into the desert. And he wept bitterly. As you look back to our text, there is one word that Essentially, my whole sermon hangs on and it's so sobering. Few more sobering words in all of the book of Amos. Just notice it in verse two it's the word therefore. Remember what comes before it. You are my people, you are my family. I have led you out of Egypt, therefore. Because of that, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Huh? Here's how one commentator sums this up. Jay Ward is his name and the quote is on the screen as well. Because the Lord knows the people of Israel intimately and cares for them, the people in its turn should know the Lord intimately and want to do his will. Because of his special care, their sins are more terrible. If verses one and two highlight the uniqueness of their relationship, then verses three to eight affirm affirm, and and here's our second point, affirm the certainty of their judgment. Um, I'm going to read verses 3 to 8, but here's what I want you to do if you have your Bibles open and you read along with me. Verses 3 to 6 specifically record seven rhetorical questions that beg the answer, no, But as we read them, what I want you to do is I want you to see the progression of severity as we go from the first to the last. Let me show you what I mean. Let's read verses three to eight. But notice verses three to six specifically. Do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Does a young lion cry out from his den if he has taken nothing? Does a bird fall in a snare on the earth when there is no trap for it? Does a snare spring up from the ground when it has taken nothing? Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. The lion has roared. Who will not fear? the Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? In other words, judgment is coming, you've been told. It it is certain, and you've been warned beforehand. But that there is a progression of severity in the seven questions, I mean, they begin with a walk, right? It's really nice. It begins with a walk, and they end with disaster. That shouldn't be missed. There's something I believe God, by way of Amos, wants us to see in this. Here's what I believe we are to see in this. Sometimes God's warnings to us, his judgment on us, comes to us my while perhaps just on a walk with a friend. You know what I mean? You go out with a friend, you're walking, and they go, I just got to, there, there's something in your life that I just, I, I think it's inconsistent with what God has for you. And I think you need to change. I, I think you need, to, you, you need to repent and turn from it. It's gonna hurt you. And, and here's the beauty. In those moments, that's judgment. That's, that's gracious judgment. That's somebody bringing the word of God and saying, this is inconsistent for you. And, and you hear that and you go, you, you know, you're right. And that's where it ends. It's sweet. But sometimes we ignore it. We ignore those walks or those conversations. And perhaps the judgment comes the next time with a cry or a a roar or maybe when we're caught in a snare. Sometimes it takes a trumpet sound, doesn't it? To get our attention. But here's the thing. If we choose to ignore them all, Disaster is certain. That's verses three to six. You ignoring any warnings lately? The gentle prodding of a friend, perhaps? Maybe the cry of a spouse? Maybe the roar of a preacher? Maybe you've been caught in something, snared. Maybe your life is spinning out of control. And the warning is coming that way. Can you hear the trumpets? Can you hear the trumpets? Are they getting louder? Interestingly, Jesus says that he will come with a trumpet sound. And at that point, no more warnings will be given. The warnings will be complete, a perfect seven. Just just listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew 24. And here's why I take you here again. And one more time, you can read this on the screen. But I want to take you here because the words of Jesus in Matthew 24 mirror Amos 3 almost perfectly, Jesus says, Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, the master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and he eats with and drinks with drunkards. Sounds like Amos 1 and 2, doesn't it? The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and in an hour he does not know. We've been warned. We've been warned. The, the lion of the tribe of Judah has roared in Matthew 24. Sure, church, I, I don't know how God is speaking to you right now, but He always speaks. God is always speaking. Maybe He's speaking to you in a still small voice, or maybe by way of a, a worldwide pandemic. Do you have ears to hear? what the Spirit is saying to you today. Maybe, maybe your life is a wreck right now and <clears throat> he's trying to get your attention by way of it. Here, here's, my, here's my exhortation. Turn to him. Turn to him. Or maybe you are a so-called brother or sister in Christ but living in sin and presuming upon the kindness of, of God and the delay of his coming. Wake up. Wake up and return to him before it's too late and the final trumpet sounds. Thus far, we've seen the uniqueness of their relationship, the the certainty of their judgment will end things by looking finally at the severity of their punishment. It's described in verses 9 to 15, but here's the thing. I'm not going to read it again, but Amos describes how God is going to raise up an adversary, it turns out to be Assyria, who will be used as a conduit of God's judgment on them. If you've ever wondered about the sovereignty of God, it is all over Amos. Their their punishment is not only certain, it is severe. It is described in verse 12 in horrific ways. It, It looks like an animal that has been ripped in two. And the only thing rescued are two legs or a piece of an ear. And what Amos says, what God says through Amos in verse 12, so shall the people of Israel be rescued, ripped in two, a piece of an ear. what do we do with this? What do we do with this? We do with it what we are to do with every other judgment of God that is recorded for us in the scriptures. We are to see them as a foreshadowing of a final one to come that will make all judgments before it pale in comparison. Hmm. And that's how the chapter ends. That's Amos 3. No good news at all. That's that's the message that God gave Amos to preach. This is his first sermon in the book of Amos. He'll have several others. But this this is sermon number one. Pretty sobering stuff. But even though that's how the chapter ends, I I don't wanna end that way today. And, And I don't want to not end that way today because it's not helpful at times to be sober and reflective. I don't want us to quickly get uncomfortable and I want to get you out of that with a a cheesy illustration or a happy, clappy, happy, clappy message at the end. I don't want to do that. But here's why I I don't want to end that way, because the Bible doesn't end with Amos chapter three. It doesn't end that way. There's more to the story. And therefore, I want to end with your permission by reminding you of a prophet that I spoke of at the beginning of this message, uh, another Old Testament prophet, the last Old Testament prophet, a a man commonly referred to as John the Baptist. Just listen in the last text that I'll put on a screen for you. Listen to what Jesus says of John the Baptist in Matthew 11, and we'll finish with this. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John, John the Baptist. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? Well, the answer to that is no. John was a tough dude. He's not not a reed, not reed-like blowing in the wind. Okay, what then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? No, we know John, right? John wore rough clothing, hung out in the desert. Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. That's not John. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? yes. And more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, behold, I send a messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. That's John. He's the Elijah type to come to prepare the way of Jesus. Then Jesus says this, truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has risen, arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Now, I'm no scientist, but I think most people are born of women. All right, check it. At least high 60 percentile. Yet, just notice this. This is Jesus saying of everyone who's come before John, John's the best. Yet Jesus says this. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Huh? Huh? This is so good. This is so good. And you know why what Jesus says here is so good? Because it's here where the good news invades Amos 3. It's where Jesus invades Amos 3. Why do I say that? Well, just reason with me, and I know my time is done, but reason with me. Of all the prophets... That's the context of what we just read. Of all the prophets who had come up until the day of Jesus, none was greater than John. You went out to see a prophet. He's actually more than a prophet, but of all the prophets, he's the greatest of prophets. But then Jesus concludes by saying, Yet the one who is the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. But greater in what way? Because remember, John's in the kingdom. So does that mean that John is the least in the kingdom and we're a little bit, that's not what Jesus is saying. The context is being a prophet. So what then? What are we greater than John at? Well, do you know the answer? We're a greater prophet than John. John was the greatest prophet up until the time of Christ, but even the least in the kingdom of heaven are a greater prophet than John. Why? Why? Because we have a greater message. Because we've seen the cross. John never saw the cross. We've seen the cross. We've seen the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. John never saw the cross and even the least in the kingdom of heaven has seen the cross and therefore their message from God is greater than John's. And what is that message? Sin is serious. That's the message in part. Sin is serious. Your sin and my sin, all sin and it increases in seriousness in light of the revelation given to us. And all sin is committed against a loving God, a good father. And all of it demands judgment from him, but a judgment that was served by Jesus. Jesus was ripped in two for us. You see, the good news that invades Amos chapter three is that forgiveness for our sins and iniquities can be ours if if we come to Jesus and receive his faith or His receive by faith his work for us in our place. You see, what follows the therefore in verse two doesn't have to be ours any longer. Jesus steps in at the therefore and he takes our punishment. You see, the story of God doesn't end in Amos chapter 3. It ends with an empty tomb. It ends with an ascended Savior. But hear me as I close a Savior who is coming again. He's coming again. Trumpets are ready to blow. Are you ready? If He came today, would He find you being faithful? Let me pray. Uh, Father, this is, this is a, it's a sobering message. This is the kind of message, and, and not because of my preaching, just what, it's, what we read in Amos 3. This is the kind of message that, that our enemy and our flesh would, would love to just kind of throw aside make excuses, perhaps for things in our lives, compare ourselves to people we think are less than us, we're better than, all, all sorts of things. But, but I believe this is a message for all of us and there are things from this text that all of us need to reflect upon. Whether we've been walking with Jesus closely for decades or, or whether we're just kicking the tires of Christianity, there's something here for us. And so... My, my prayer is that if, if there are things in our lives that need to be repented of, turn from and, and turn to you, whatever it is, spotlight it, and may we be obedient, um, if we know you and we're, we're living it practicing sin, return to you if we don't come to you for the first time. Because you are returning Jesus. You are returning. As a, as a judge on a throne, and justice will be rolled out. All cries for justice will be answered. But not all injustice is out there. But all injustice out there is birthed in our hearts. And we can't change our hearts. We need you to change our hearts. So please change our hearts. Stir our affections for you. We, we, we ask for your forgiveness for the times where we have presumed upon your kindness. Forgive us. Help us, change us. I pray for these things in the beautiful name of, of Jesus. Amen.